Hi, welcome to Research in Focus, a podcast exploring the work of Latrobe researchers. I'm Lauren Gorn. Some Australians take radical steps to reconcile their sexuality or sexual identity with their religious beliefs. But what are the impacts of purported conversion therapies on individuals and communities? Timothy Jones is a senior lecturer in history at La Trobe University, whose research focuses on gender, sexuality and religion. Tim, welcome to Research in Focus. Thanks, Lauren. In late 2018, you released a report uh, preventing harm, promoting justice, responding to LGBT conversion therapy in Australia, which was a collaborative project between La Trobe, the Human Rights Law Centre and GLHV in Victoria. This report talked about Conversion therapy in Australia, what is conversion therapy for people who might be unfamiliar with it? Sure. So the phenomena that we were researching in this pilot study um, was looking at the attempts by religious groups who don't accept gender and sexuality uh, as diverse phenomena, um, the attempts to sexually uh, reorient and, and reorient the gender of LGBT people. And that's usually to something like what we would consider to be heteronormative or straight or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Attempts, like that. attempts to turn queer people straight and cisgendered. Right. The research that you cite in your report seems to pretty clearly and consistently demonstrate that this is not an effective thing to do, that there is, there, no one has yet, as yet come up with any therapy or, or any process that can reorient someone's sexuality in this way. So why does it persist? So, yeah, it's um, there's been very little uh, research on conversion therapies. Mainstream psychiatry ran experiments from the 1930s up until the 1970s trying to come up with therapies that would reorient someone's sexuality or gender, uh, and they were never successful. And it was about the time, so as the medical experiments were concluding it didn't work, um, that kind of com- that coincided with the gay liberation movement and broader movements of change in people's social values, accepting that LGBT people are fully human, just like anybody else. And when did that shift occur for people who may may not remember that period? Sure. So um, the sex revolution is in the late 1960s mm-hmm. uh, in Australia. Gay liberation emerges in the early 1970s. Uh, and the Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists uh, in 1972 and 1973 removed homosexuality from their list of mental illnesses. And it is at this time, in the absence of, of kind of the evidence from science that religion step in as the main people to continue practising these kinds of conversion therapies? It's less of a continuation so mainstream uh, mental health practitioners stop doing it. Society starts to come around and um, view LGBT people as normal, not sick people. Um, but then religious communities, which couldn't accept that LGBT people, LGBT identities were valid identities, went out and found that developed their own unique ways to try and attempt to straighten people up. Right. Is this something that was imported to Australia? It seems like something that's very common and commonly discussed in the context of the United States, and that's kind of where I've heard of conversion therapy happening. Is this something we we took from there and brought to Australia? Yeah, it's one of the great misconceptions that our our report reveals. 
uh, is that whilst the um, US ex-gay movement, as it's commonly known, is the biggest uh, biggest source of ex-gay ideology and, and therapies, it actually emerged in Australia independently. So out of uh, faith healing traditions and out of sort of popular psychology movements all around the world, as uh, social values were changing, conservative groups innovated and uh, built their own methods to try and attempt to reorient people, drawing from popular understandings of psychoanalysis, um, drawing from addiction recovery and self-help movements like Alcoholics Anonymous, and drawing on their own faith healing um, traditions. Okay, so they're built up from a range of, of different perspectives. Is this just something that's particular to Christian faiths, or is it uh, something that other faiths have also shown that they, they do this kind of thing? Yeah, one of the fascinating things that I found, um, although obviously Christianity is the um, vastly predominant religion in Australia, we spoke to people from other religious backgrounds as well, uh, and there's some literature on um, similar movements in other faith traditions, uh, and all of the religious groups have a very similar understanding of gender and sexuality, and conservative religious groups see expressions of gender and sexual diversity as uh, human brokenness or illness, uh, and sin, uh, and they have a very, very similar suite of therapies and you know spiritual activities that they that they use to try and change people. Your report not only surveys the literature on the kind of history of conversion therapy and also the kind of current policy climate in Australia and elsewhere, but you also invested a lot of time in talking to people who had been through conversion therapy. As, as a treatment with various religious backgrounds, what were some of the key themes or stories that came up when you talked to people about their experiences of conversion therapy? Yeah, so it's a pretty, it's a very confusing phenomena. Uh, and so we combined three distinct disciplinary approaches to try and understand it. And the mm-hmm. history is really important because um, sexuality and gen- gender uh, understandings have changed so much in the last 50 years. Uh, and the legal analysis that the Human Rights Law Centre did was really amazing at looking at the current state of law around the world and as different jurisdictions are trying to address this problem. Nobody's really come up with a really optimal solution yet because it's a very complex problem. But it was really important to document the experiences of people who had undergone it. And uh, it, was pretty, it was a pretty amazing experience going out and looking for people to talk to and then them sharing their lives with us. So we did... Uh, social researchers will be very jealous. We did practically no recruitment, um, and uh, in this, you know, in the space of a month, just having one article uh, in street press and on social media, uh, we had uh, over fifty people uh, contact us wanting to speak to us. That seems to indicate that conversion therapy is a lot more prevalent than we might think it is, especially yeah. those of us who live outside of kind of faith-based communities. How yeah. prevalent is it as a phenomenon? So we estimated, um, and there's, there's, well, we, we had two different um, approaches. I mean, obviously, we fifty people contacted us, and we spoke to fifteen people to document the quality of their experiences. And we tried to get a range of people all around Australia, um, different genders and sexualities, and so on. But a pilot study of fifteen people can't tell you questions about prevalence. Yeah, there was a big. Uh, LGBT survey in the UK, which has a very similar religious demographic to Australia. Uh, and of the, I think, 5,000 respondents to that survey, 7% of people had been offered or undergone conversion therapy. 
it's sufficiently prevalent that it touches a lot of people. Yeah, and we estimated that um, uh, on the best, and there isn't very good data about this, but the best data on religious participation in Australia, that perhaps 10% of Australians are involved in religious communities that promote uh, conversion therapy ideology and practice conversion therapies. So what were some of those stories that came out of those 15 interviews in terms of people's experiences? So we spoke to people um, who had a range of experiences, but there are a lot of commonalities. People had engaged in, most people had engaged in multiple different types of therapeutic activities uh, to change their sexuality or gender. Um, They had, uh, some people had uh, engaged in it for a very short period of time and then realised this isn't working. Mm -hmm. Other people spent decades, spent huge portions of their life trying to change deep-seated parts of themselves and their experiences ranged from the uh, mid nineteen eighties up until two thousand and sixteen, when we when we conducted the interviews. Okay. Um, the most common form of conversion therapy is kind of modelled on the Alcoholics Anonymous peer group therapy. Okay. Where people get together and talk about their experiences and try and change their behaviours. Most people had also engaged in some form of uh, counselling with a mental health practitioner whether it was a registered psychiatrist or psychologist or someone calling themselves a counsellor. And everyone had also engaged in pastoral counselling with uh, a religious minister. You say someone who called themselves a counsellor. There's clearly a large grey area or or set of complications around this being sold as a a therapy for conversion therapy and uh, perhaps a kind of grey zone around who is qualified to... I mean, given that it's a disputed thing anyway, but this kind of application of something that sounds very science-y uh, to something that is perhaps not that science and not supported at all by evidence. Yeah. So we were disturbed at the number of people who had seen registered mental health clinicians uh, to undergo conversion therapy. None of that, that, that is unethical behaviour on the part, you know, it's against the codes of practice for mental health professionals okay. to engage in this therapy unambiguously and were the people in a position to make a complaint, they could. Um, but counselling is an entirely unregulated industry in Australia. There's no, uh, people don't have to be registered to a peak body. They don't have to subscribe to ethical standards or statements of practice. Right. So I could set myself up as a counsellor. So you could call yourself a counsellor. We're talking right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I might, I might not put that on my list of potential jobs, maybe. Yeah. But one of, our, one of our key recommendations is that counselling in Australia becomes a regulated industry to, to pre- prevent the kinds of malpractice that we uncovered in this report. Right. The way that conversion therapy is kind of positioned within different religious organisations or within the wider community seems to be happening at a time when also wider attitudes to LGBTI uh, rights and, and identities is kind of shifting in Australia. Has there been in that historical perspective that you've you've shown a shift in how conversion therapies are kind of marketed or sold to people uh, in order to kind of attempt to stay in, in some kind of equilibrium with, with larger social attitudes that are obviously completely different to, to this. Yeah, so um, the documents of the early movement mm-hmm. um, show a much more, uh, a much higher degree of confidence in their capacity to free people from homosexuality or cure people. And so the, the first two decades of the conversion therapy movement, they made very... Um, positive statements about the capacity of people to change. Right. 
from the 1990s when uh, it was a bit of a turning point in social attitudes towards sexuality and gender. Um, Organisations started to use a much more nuanced language uh, about being much more cautious about claims, the claims they made about people um, being able to change, being much more ethically nuanced about only dealing with people who have unwanted same-sex attraction or unwanted gender dysphoria. Um, so, so putting the agency back on the clients of these kinds of therapies. And uh, in more recent times, the movement's gone largely underground. So lots of... We demonstrated that there are at least 10 organisations devoted to conversion therapy still in operation. Right. Uh, and that these kinds of practices are mainstreamed in many conservative churches. But they no longer call it conversion therapy in most instances. They have another language about... Um, helping people with sexual purity, sexual wholeness, sexual healing, um, avoiding so, explicit av- mentions avoiding of the, conversion therapy. And, and kind of appropriating the wellness literature. Absolutely. It's very common outside of church demographics yes, as well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> what did different – and obviously each organisation is different, so you, you don't need to kind of overly generalise. But given that conversion therapy as a phenomenon seemed to arise at a particular social point, what were people doing before this in terms of reconciling maybe their sexual and religious identities or what were these communities doing in terms of approaching these individuals? Yeah, a lot of people are really surprised um, when they hear that it's uh, not just in America, a kooky American thing, but that's happening everywhere. That people, that, or A second assumption that people have is that it goes back a long way. Um, religious-based LGBT conversion therapy only really emerges in the late 1960s and early 1970s at all different places around the world. And it's a big shift from um, the way in which religious communities used to deal with people who were not straight and cisgendered. Right. So uh, from about the 1950s when understandings of sexual identity um, that we have now became common, mm-hmm. as churches started to recognise that oh, some people are homosexuals, um, they don't fit in our traditional moral framework. Many churches looked into what can be done and the mainstream psychiatry couldn't do anything to make people straight. Uh, so most churches developed quite a pastoral policy of just helping people adjust, helping people accept themselves, actually, which is quite, it's quite remarkable when you go and look back at the documents. A completely different approach to the conversion therapy. Yeah, exactly. So conversion ter- therapy says you're broken and you need to be fixed, you can be fixed and you need to be fixed to be part of the community. Before the 1970s, the most common approach was like, oh, you're not straight. Maybe um, that's a problem, but how can we help you? Well, we'll help you to adjust to yourself and to live a productive social life within the community. Um, there, there was, it wasn't a full, like, it's okay to be gay. We're, we accept you fully. Mm-hmm. It's more like, oh, you've got a disability. Um, you're not straight. Uh, okay, well, how can we make life the best for you? Right. So a, a very different approach. In terms of the findings of your report, as you said, it, it draws upon historical information and legal information and contemporary sociological interviews with people. How important is it to now work with faith-based organisations or with individuals to critically examine the role that conversion therapy or whatever it's being called now has in these organisations? And what kind of what kind of uh, ongoing problems does it cause for people who go through this process? Yeah, one of the things that the report documents really clearly is just how harmful engagement with conversion activities is for people. All of the people that we interviewed suffered deep and long-lasting mental health problems, every single one of them. Even the people who I was quite surprised, you know, reading these 
really amazing and personal stories and it was so great to have the the chance to kind of read about people's experiences. But even people who had really mild, quote, unquote, contact or, or short periods of time in this kind of um, situation ended up still really deeply traumatised for a long time. Yeah, so the um, being told um, that one deep part of yourself, your gender sexuality, um, is incompatible with another deep part of yourself and being told that it's your fault, you're broken, you can be fixed, you should be fixed, um, sets up this horrible like identity conflict. Um, every person we interviewed had contemplated suicide at one point. That was the depth of the mental struggle that, that this conflict set up in people. Right. Many of them took years and years and years um, to get over it. Many of them aren't over it. Um, it's entirely understandable. Many of mm-hmm. them, are, about a third of our participants... Uh, got married as part of their therapy and then suffered the guilt about when they finally uh, came out, the guilt of putting their spouse and their children through all of that unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. A third of the participants were compelled to undergo conversion therapy as minors before they had the capacity to consent. And that's something your report really strongly condemns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, every, Every professional every mental health professional, every religious professional should know that these practices don't work and are harmful uh, and people shouldn't be forced uh, to engage in them. Your work on this report has been ongoing for the last few years and your other area, one of your other areas of research is looking at child victims of sexual assault in religious organisations. Um, so your research grapples with people's really profound personal experiences of um, the kind of complexities of institutional kind of propagation of harm in a way uh, within these organisations. How do you navigate working with groups of people who are deeply, deeply affected and traumatised um, by their experiences? Because obviously it's, it's important work that you're doing telling these stories, but that's navigating a lot of trauma for individuals as well. Yeah, uh, it's it has been a bit of an. I didn't I didn't have a love for trauma and move into this area, <laughs> but to punish myself and the people I interviewed. But it strikes me that our contemporary society doesn't really know how to deal with um, conflicts between uh, religion uh, and sex discrimination and gender discrimination, and these are big problems that we need to bring uh, academic rigor to try and solve. So I think they're. They're big problems that we don't know how to deal with at the moment and they require research and, and hard thinking um, to engage in and, uh, and open up possibilities for change in this area. Working with individuals who've been traumatised is very difficult. Uh, we're very careful uh, when we recruited people to make sure that people had uh, were aware of the potential risks of um, distress in talking about um, emotionally difficult experiences that, that, that they have had in the past. You deliberately screened people out of being interviewed for the conversion therapy report for those who, who you felt wouldn't be able to kind of cope with the, the trauma of this. Yeah, so uh, so over 50 people contacted us. We interviewed 15 people. A number of people, uh, when we explained the process, said, oh, I'm not up for that. Yeah. Some people who didn't have appropriate care provisions, we said, it's probably better for you not to do this. Uh, and so on, and we did follow it up with people afterwards to make sure that they're okay and they had appropriate supports and to to see how um, the interview process impacted on them. And how important is it for people to be able to tell those stories to an audience who is 
engaged and willing to listen and, and wants to help see change happen. It's really important. And I think um, what was really lovely to see was how willing people were to engage in hard things in their past. Lots of people cried. Lots of people said it took them a little while to recover from the interview. But everyone we spoke to said they were really glad that they had done it. They were really glad that an issue which had been hidden and kept kind of in the closet, so to speak, that, that they were able to contribute to bringing it out in the open and, and being able to contribute to a positive change in the area. So even though it was difficult for people to tell their stories, they really valued the opportunity to contribute to change. What would you say personally for you are the most important findings or uh, suggestions for change to come out of the report on conversion therapy? So I think this pilot study was really valuable in showing um, that it is a real problem in Australia, that it affects a significant number of people. It's not just a weird American um, export or something that happened in the past, like it's a problem that we need to deal with today and it demonstrates that clearly. Mm -hmm. um, but it also shows the complexity of it. It shows that um, law reform is not enough. Uh, law reform can't capture this, that we need to do more research and work with affected communities to help them become more aware of the harms that these practices cause and to give and help them to think about ways that they can better provide, they can provide more appropriate pastoral care spiritual health and mental health to LGBT people. Um, if anyone's going to be tackling those big questions, I'm glad that it's you. Thank you very much, Tim, for coming on Research in Focus. Thanks, Lauren. Research in Focus is a La Trobe University podcast produced by Laurie Zion and Lauren Gorn. Support for this podcast comes from La Trobe University's Transforming Human Societies Research Focus area. This podcast is edited by Max Robbins and Margaret Purdom, and hosted by Upstart. Our music is Bright Future by Silent Partner. Music